advocates, policy wonks, and fans of our parks. Today, you get to meet someone who's fighting for you and our parks every day. Hi, my name is Riley Smith, and today on Broken Laces, we talk to Marsha Argus, who directs the Pew Charitable Trust efforts to restore America's parks. Currently, she's working on passing legislation within the House and Senate to help address the billions of dollars of deferred maintenance in our national parks. This includes roads, buildings, trails, and more. Considering the economic and societal benefits it provides, it's such an important policy to back and throw your support to. Along the way, we learn about how Marsha got to where she is, how she became passionate about public lands, and of course, her favorite trails and elves in the mid-Atlantic. Enough from me, let's, let's hit the trailhead. Hey, Marsha. How are you, Riley? I'm doing well. It's, it's great to talk to you. You too. Yes, thanks for, for joining the podcast. I, I, I wanted to have you on because I feel like you're occupying a really unique space in our you know outdoors landscape, and that is you are in D.C. helping enact policy that, that really helps serve all of our parks. I like to think so. Uh, I'm pretty fortunate to be doing what I'm doing, living in D.C., but also working on so many public lands and, and national park issues and getting to visit these places as well. I always like to open up with my guests and just kind of know how you came into your unique position, uh, being in D.C., working in policy and on, on in public lands and with our national parks. I, w- I would love to hear you know, the Cliff Notes versions of how you arrived to your spot. Was this an intentional act or was this, you know, a little bit of luck of, of getting the right job and kind of stumbling into it? Uh, probably both intentional and <laughs> I think some luck mixed in there. Um, I have always loved being outdoors. Uh, that's how I grew up, you know parents were like, go outside and play, Marsha. Um, and we went camping for our vacations. You know, that's um, in the days of the old canvas tents and the flannel sleeping bags that were always wet when you woke up. Uh, there were no uh, rain flies or anything like that. Um, ironically, the first real vacation we took where we stayed in a hotel was to Washington, D.C., and I loved the town. I loved the National Mall, the museums, the, the subway system. And I was always uh, um, very much into policy issues and policy debates. So after college, it was very natural for me to head to D.C. and look for a job. And I went to Capitol Hill and I, I walked from office to office until I found a job. Um, I don't think you can do that nowadays. Right. But um, this is where the luck came in. Uh, The office that I landed in uh, for a a representative from New York, he was a moderate Republican, and he became a leader on environmental issues. And that was kind of my first step in pairing advocacy with my passion for conservation. 
so you you have this first gig and you probably work on a few you know legislative items and and it piques your interest i would assume and then how did how does it evolve from there do you stay in the legislature or do you kind of venture out into the other arenas within dc um well two things happened um (laughs) i started earning money for the first time in my life right (laughs) and so my very first um, vacation where I was on my own, I went west of the Mississippi for the first time in my life. And, and where did I go but national parks um, with the tent uh, because I felt comfortable camping in national parks on my own. And I couldn't believe what the west looked like. I grew up on the east coast and I just saw landscapes I'd never seen. Um, I just fell in love with that landscape and thought, boy, you know, I, I need to see more of these places. So I went back to D.C. and um, after working on the Hill for five years, uh, <laughs> working 80-hour weeks, you know, it was time to move on. And I looked for issues and, and places where I could concentrate on conservation. Um, and that led me eventually to working for uh, National Park Advocacy Group. It's, it's my experience that once you're you're into this space, you kind of have a set of tools to kind of execute the change that you're trying to affect. At this point, what tools are you working with to kind of help you push through the advocacy work that you're you're trying to enact? You know, there's tools that I think everybody in this arena uses. Um, They're part of the formula, I think, for a successful campaign, right? You need to generate the grassroots, which is diverse voices, right, who are going to reach out to members of Congress or the administration. Uh, There's the grass tops or the VIPs that are going to help you. And you need media to be engaged on your issue. And and most importantly, a leader, right? You need somebody um, who's going to champion your issue, whether that's somebody in Congress or in the administration or a community leader. But these are, you know, as I mentioned, part of any formula. Um, I think there's some tools that people don't always think about, and that's, you know, to have some very focused goals because the tactics are going to change, or at least they should change as, as you need to adapt sometimes. Um, You also, I think if you're going to be successful in a campaign, you need to listen to who your stakeholders are. Um, You need to really understand all the different points of view. And I think this is a problem in the conservation community. We don't always stop to listen to other stakeholders. Um, And the reason I say that is because You know, it's not an all or nothing world out there. And I think we need to collaborate um, if we're going to have successes. At the end of the day, you know, we don't need to compromise if the deal isn't worth compromising over. But let's at least be willing to have dialogues with other stakeholders out there. And that's, you know, a very important part of um, a campaign that makes total sense. And and so you've been in D.C. For, for all of your career or the majority of your career? Oh, boy. I'm embarrassed to say um, all of my career, which is... <laughs> 
came here in 91. You're fighting the good fight. So that's more than okay. That's nothing to be ashamed (laughs) of. Uh, So you're, you're currently with the Pew Charitable Trust. I'm assuming you, you work through the legislature. You've, you've been to certain, uh, you know, advocacy issues at this point and and being there as long as you, you have, I'd love to hear kind of what your, your proudest achievement thus far is of working in DC and, and kind of secondarily what what your dream is uh in terms of what you would like to see you know worked through at that level sure um well my proudest achievement is getting a bill signed into law that protected almost 300,000 acres of federal land in idaho is wilderness and that was the boulder white clouds uh, legislation And that happened a little over three years ago. Um, I'm proud of that, actually, for several reasons. It occurred after a decade of work, actually more than a decade, uh, with a member of Congress um, who did not waver in his support, and that member was uh, Congressman Mike Simpson. Mm. And at the end of the day, that bill was led by two Republicans, and it passed unanimously in the House and the Senate, which were both controlled at the time by Republican-led House and Senate. And, you know, we were on the verge of that area of Idaho being protected as a national monument by the president. Um, But we were able to protect the area as wilderness instead, which is actually a a higher protection than a national monument. And we were able to do it, if you will, the old-fashioned way, legislative, by sticking with, you know, the the folks who brought us to the dance, if you will, and negotiating with those members and with stakeholders. And quite frankly, folks thought we would never be able to, to work this out. You bring up a good point, the one that I, that I hadn't thought of in, before our call, in terms of kind of what the strategy is uh, going into you know conservation and and land protection of of what kind of status that you're you're trying to achieve, whether that be wilderness, monument, um, national forest, national park. I would love to hear a little bit about how you kind of think through those situations, because I know for the layperson, it's, you know, people think national park or bust, and there's just so much more, so many more levers available for you to kind of think about from a public lands protection perspective. And I would love for you to kind of just drill down a little bit deeper of, of how you think through that. Well, it's tricky and Not everybody uh, may agree with the calculations. Um, Wilderness in a national park is probably the highest protection you're ever going to get. There are many different designations, as you mentioned. There's you can have wilderness um, in a BLM area. Um, You can have wilderness in a national forest, wilderness in a park. You can have national recreation areas. They all have different uses. And when you're putting legislation together, you determine with your stakeholders, you know, what uses are needed to protect the landscape, to fit the needs of the local communities. And that's where this thinking, in my mind, has evolved over time because I've worked with many stakeholders on issues like this. This is where you need to collaborate. Um, Deals can be 
you know, made or lost when you're, you're not able to have a dialogue with folks. So a national monument, for instance, um, some folks in Idaho were unhappy with the legislation because a national monument would have allowed mountain biking, but wilderness does not. So that was a big issue. Right. Then again, wilderness, you know, will protect that land in perpetuity from roads and other types of development. So, you know, some folks were not happy. Others were very pleased. Um, when you're working on wilderness legislation, you are working with folks from the ground up and the members of Congress from that community. A national monument, in some cases, can be proclaimed by the president. Thanks, Marsha. Let's take a quick break. If you enjoy Broken Laces, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a fellow friend about the show or share on your favorite social media site, preferably the one where you have the most friends. There's no team here at Broken Laces, just me and I could use the most help spreading the word about the show. There's no team here at Broken Laces, just me and I could use the most help spreading the word about the show. If you'd like to support Broken Laces further, you can do so at patreon.com brokenlaces. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash broken laces. Pledging as much as you'd like to help offset the cost of producing the show. Consider it like you're buying me coffee or better yet, sharing a granola bar on the trail. Right now, this is a hobby, but I dream about working in the outdoors industry and this could be the gateway. Thanks for listening and back to the show. I know you're working currently on a project with, you know, fix the parks uh, and deferred maintenance. I'd love for you to kind of give me and the listeners the the brochure argument for what you're currently have been working on for the past few years and few years, I'm assuming, because I know I've been following you uh, for that time. <laughs> yeah, over three years yeah. now. Um, time flies. So deferred maintenance is the backlog of repairs that are needed within the national park system. And this backlog is currently estimated to cost $11.9 billion to fix. So that reflects uh, 2018 data okay. from the National Park Service. When we're talking about repairs, we're talking about things like roads that are falling apart and crumbling. Um, we're talking about eroding trails, monuments, memorials, battlefields that are deteriorating, um, historic buildings that are often neglected, and outdated water and sewage systems, uh, campgrounds uh, that are in bad shape, and, and even dilapidated employee housing. Um, one thing that folks ask, you know, why can't the National Park Service keep pace with repairs? And what we need to keep in mind is that the National Park Service is over 100 years old, and the facilities and infrastructure are aging. Uh, the other issue is that visitation pressures put wear and tear on resources within the agency. Uh, last year, there were over 300 million visitors going to the various national park units. And last, uh, one of the biggest reasons that the agency can't keep pace with repairs is inconsistent funding for maintenance issues and repairs. 
there's some visitation pressure. There's the fact of some inconsistencies in funding from the legislature. And then there's just the wear and tear that happens with a hundred plus years of national park facilities. And so what what are you working on and what are you advocating for to help kind of rectify the multitude of factors there? Our priority right now is legislation that would direct over $1 billion each year in dedicated federal funding to priority park repairs. That would really help the park service uh, do planning and design work for these critical repairs and give them a leg up. When you speak to that figure, is there a particular set of national park fixes that are that are needed to be made? I know a lot of it is roads, but how does that get allocated? Sure. The Park Service um, allocates money by priority repairs. So uh, whether a asset is a safety mm. issue or a safety risk, um, that's taken into account. Um, also issues like visitor experience, whether an asset is critical to the mission of the National Park Service. For instance, if the Washington Monument was about to right. fall over, um, that asset is the mission <laughs> of that particular unit. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I've seen enough facility reports to know that there's ratings on how you know deteriorated those assets are. And so there's some sort of priority dependent on the criticality of, of that asset, but also the safety and just kind of how worn down it is that determines priority. And, and that's kind of how the money gets allocated. Yeah, there's a number of different factors um, and they're taken into account. And each region, the Park Service is broken into regions, they will assess all their assets and they will rate the, as you use the word criticality, um, they send their information to the national office. And then, um, you know, it's a matter of triaging basically um, what resources they have to the, the highest priority repair needs. What barriers exist for you to, to pass this type of need? It seems like there's a desire from the American public to, to fix their parks. Um, there seems to be a bipartisan want to do it. And so what do you see as kind of the, the key barriers to, to helping execute on this deferred maintenance? There is tremendous support for this proposal, um, the, the Restore Our Parks legislation that I alluded to before. Um, last Congress, over half of the House of Representatives supported this legislation, as well as one-third of the Senate and the administration. So the barriers to moving this now, I think, are the cost of the legislation. Um, and that's unfortunate because this funding does not come out of taxpayers' pockets. It would be funded by royalties that would come from energy development receipts that are paid into the U.S. Treasury. Um, so for us, it makes sense to have those receipts that aren't already obligated to other purposes go to something like park uh, maintenance. 
it's really important that the parks are in good working order. Um, it's actually an investment to fix our parks. The economic benefits for local communities have been proven over and over. Yeah, and, and we've alluded to kind of the, the chief deferred maintenance items, but I'd love for you to just kind of capture them in some quick buckets and then we'll move on. But we're, we're talking about roads, buildings. We're talking about what else? Uh, roads, buildings, trails, monuments, memorials, water and sewage systems, uh, campgrounds. Uh, those are some of the big ones. Parking lots. Right. And I don't think anybody's opposed to to keeping those things up as we all visit and, and throws to go to these parks. So uh, I'm just glad that we kind of covered that at a superficial level. I know we both could nerd out and cover it at a very policy research paper level. <laughs> and maybe maybe we can post a link for those who want to nerd out with us uh, on, the, on the blog that accustomed this, this, this podcast. But beyond deferred maintenance, kind of what other issues exist out there? You know, if in the next year you get the exact funding you'd want from the legislature, is there are there any other kind of top issues that exist within the public land sphere that we need to be aware of? You know, I think uh, the biggest issues right now, um, and I don't have the policy solutions here, but they're really uh, drought, wildfire, and flooding, mm -hmm. um, regardless of, of whether people think climate is the cause or not. Uh, drought, wildfire, flooding are happening right. on larger scales uh, than ever before. Um, and, and the impacts are being felt in almost, you know, in every aspect of society. Um, so we've got to acknowledge this and figure out ways to adapt, figure out ways to deal with this down the road. Right. And these these are going to end up being regional local plans because these elements are affecting national parks in different ways. As you mentioned, it could, it could be a drought one year for one park and it could be flooding for another and vice versa. You know, two years down the road, it could be the exact opposite for those two parks. So at this point, it's an adaptation issue, right? It's it's a little bit, we're a little bit too far down the road to think about it from how do we stop this from happening? Uh, that's, a, that's a good point. Adaptation is a very important word. Um, but I, <laughs> I do think it's, we need to be thinking a, a, about this at all levels, right. uh, you know, locally, regionally, statewide, you know, nationally, globally, because, uh, you know, I, I'm actually thinking about this beyond parks, right? This is parks, this is communities. Um, I think, you know, we were just talking about this tonight over the dinner table when <laughs> we, we were chatting about where my son might be interested in living after college. And he said, well, I don't want to be on the West Coast because there's too many things happening there. Um, you know, this is a kid who's 18 right. and he's worried about where to live because of fires and, and earthquakes. And so that's unfortunate. Living in the West Coast, it's it's interesting to hear somebody say that because it's it is. Oh, right. 
Yeah. <laughs> you live on the West Coast, yeah. sorry. No, 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 that's totally fair because it's something we think about all the time. And and having lived in in California for eight years, it's it just depended on what area of state you lived in and and what unlucky fortune would ha- would occur. So it's it just seems bigger than the parks. And I don't know, as you mentioned, it, it affects more than those, those, those park units. I just don't know how we can get ahead of it. And it just seems it's a conversation that needs to be had for sure. Absolutely. So uh, it's a similar question. If you had a magic wand and you could just affect whatever public lands advocacy strategy you would like, what would be your one magic wand use? Well, listen, after working on deferred maintenance legislation <laughs> for three years, it would be to yeah. uh, take care of the whole deferred maintenance backlog, um, which is actually not what our current legislation is is trying to do. We're just trying to uh, take care of the priority repairs. But hey, if you're giving me a magic wand, let's just take care of the whole, you want the whole thing. $12 billion backlog and, and I'll put yeah. myself out of a job, but that's okay. I figured that was the answer and I had it as kind of a half question because I knew it would I knew it would be a short answer <laughs> and that's totally okay. <laughs> so I would I want to end before we hop into the kind of the last question of just anything that generically you would like the the public lay person to to do to stay involved in this issue. Um, is it the typical, like contact your legislator? Is it doing something locally with their parks? What, what kind of recommendation would you give for those who just want to be a better advocate for their, their parks? Well, if I can be a little selfish, um, we always like it when people volunteer at their local parks, but if I can be a little selfish and ask folks to weigh in on this particular legislation, um, which would direct funding for priority repairs, um, that would be my ask. Um, so you can go to congress.gov. If you're not sure who your representative or senator is, you can just put in your zip code and your your member or your senators will pop up and you can email them and say, you know, why your parks are important to you. Um, share a story with them or your favorite trail and then ask them to support the Restore Our Parks legislation uh, in the Senate. The number is S.500 and in the House the number is H.R.1225 and that would be a terrific help. You picked easy numbers. Those Those are great numbers. S.500 and H.R. 1225. Like I, they're good omens, I think. Yeah, that's that's great. So that's that's an easy ask. So so go to that website. That's that's congress.gov, and then you enter in the zip code. Did I capture that correctly? Yep, you can enter in cool. the zip code, and yep, your members. That's five. S five hundred HR twelve twenty five. Look, easy numbers. That means you got to go in and leave a comment to support the restore the parks. 
restore our parks. Our legacy. parks. There you go. Perfect. I want to I want to end of course with Trails and Ales, which is me asking my guests kind of what their favorite brewery/trail combo is in their respective region. You living in the Mid-Atlantic, I'm sure you have some some Virginia hikes, some Maryland hikes, and Pennsylvania hikes that you're accustomed to, and I'd love for you to kind of share with our listeners what hike do they need to go to? Um, sure. First, in, in full disclosure, <laughs> I'm a lightweight. The last time I had a, a lot of beers after uh, a trail was a mountain biking trail in the Chattahoochee National Forest in Tennessee, and I, I broke my wrist. And um, So that's a no-go. No, no. I had the beers after I broke the wrist. Oh, okay. Well, then. <laughs> before we went to ER. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. After I hike, I usually take a nap yeah, these days. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but here is my hike recommendation, and there is a great um, brewery nearby. Uh, Prince William Forest Park. The name is deceiving, but it is actually a national park unit in Virginia. And it's about a 25-minute drive from D.C. So I love going there. And the South Valley Trail, you can do a... Well, you can make it any distance you want. You can do anything from four to eight miles. And it's just a beautiful forested trail. You can go by a pyrite mine, an old pyrite mine. and Nice. It's a great park, terrific history. It started as a children's relief camp during the Great Depression. Um, still has a lot of historic cabins around. After you're done visiting that park, Port City Brewing Company... It's a neat place. They do tours, tastings. Um, I would recommend the Red. Uh, it's it's not as wimpy as uh, the typical beers that I would drink, yeah. but um, it is a neat place. Great atmosphere there. Um, so that would be my recommendation. Good, and then normally I have to dig deeper and say, you know, what beer do you order? But you've you've already got your selection. It's the, it's the red. Well, normally normally I would drink a hard cider, but they don't have that, so this is <laughs> the closest I can get. So, well, this is that's a good recommendation. Not everybody's out there trying to do a, a triple IPA, so I enjoy that, and I I will have to check out. It's the Prince William Forest Park. Yes. Perfect. And that's about 25 minutes out of DC. So I want to thank you for hopping on the line and talking to me about how you came into your work within DC public lands advocacy, your primary objective with the deferred maintenance backlog, and then sharing a little bit of trails and nails with me. So I appreciate you hopping on the line with me. Thank you, Riley. Have a great night. You as well, Marcia. Bye.